Welcome back to Africa Investigates, a podcast that delves into some of the biggest financial investigations across the continent. I'm your host, Chris Roper, a senior Knight Fellow with the International Centre for Journalists and with Code for Africa. This week, we kick off part one in a two-part series that examines Australian mining practices across Africa. Australian politicians and business leaders have claimed that their country's reputation in African mining is untarnished, standing above the regularly criticised activities of Chinese companies in the region. Incomes fatal extraction, the human cost of Australia's mining empire in Africa. This transnational collaboration exposes the misconduct of Australian mining companies in 13 of the 33 African countries where they are operational. And until recently, these Australian mining companies had escaped public and political attention. This project was put together as a partnership among the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, or ICIJ, the African Network of Centres for Investigative Reporting, or ANCA, and the individual journalists who provided local expertise. ICIJ and ANCA constructed the most comprehensive database on Australian mining interests in Africa, providing grants and a team of multi-language editors and prosecutorial and financial experts. Meanwhile, investigators scoured thousands of documents to build a comprehensive picture of Australian mining operations. The project was financially supported by the Open Society West Africa Initiative, with additional support from Free Press Unlimited. Fatal Extraction found that since the beginning of 2004, more than 380 people have died in mining accidents or in off-site skirmishes connected to Australian mining companies in Africa. The journalists also discovered thousands of workers, farmers and village chiefs taking the companies to court, dozens of legal actions to protect the environment from pollution, clearing and drilling, and even charges that company representatives bribed mining ministry officials in West Africa. In response to the investigation, Australian politicians called for reform and for official investigations, and mining companies were forced to release statements to their shareholders defending their actions. Today on our podcast, we are privileged to have Will Fitzgibbon, a project lead reporter and head of the Africa desk at ICIJ, and David Dembele, a Mali-based investigative journalist with Depeche du Mali and Les Echo, who contributed to Fatal Extraction. First, we'll speak with Will Fitzgibbon about the Fatal Extraction project and the broader role of investigative journalism in Africa. Well, why was Australia chosen as the corporate nationality at the centre of the mining story? And how does Australia fare against other state actors such as China and Canada? Sure. Well, as I'm sure you'll gather from my voice, I'm Australian. So that, that did play a role in my interest in the subject. But I think much more than that, why fatal extraction focused on Australian mining companies was that it seemed to me, and I think it seemed to many of the journalists who worked on it, that the... Australian mining industry in Africa was somewhat of a gaping hole in terms of political and public awareness. Uh, as our investigation revealed, Australia has a massive presence in Africa's mining industry with more companies registered in Australia that, in Africa than there are Canadian companies, British companies or even Chinese companies. So to me it seemed an obvious topic for an investigative journalist and for a team of investigative journalists to do, which is to say okay, there's a gap here of knowledge, let's see what's behind that. What were some of the major investigative discoveries? I think I would 
see that uh, on at least two levels. So we have, you know, the continent-wide realisations, which is just the pure scale of Australia's mining presence in Africa. Uh, hundreds of companies from Australia active in at least 33 countries in Africa, and they range from small exploration companies, which might have a few kilometres of land in South Africa, to multinationals that have hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands, rather, of square kilometres across multiple countries. So we established the scale, which is important because in lots of these countries and even for Australian investors, they're not always necessarily aware of where these companies operate. Um, and also establishing for the first time the figure of fatalities on that. So at least 380 reported deaths since 2004 until today of workers and non-workers whose deaths were linked to both officially and in other kinds of reporting to Australian mining activity in Africa. And those tolls hadn't been established before and we were able to do that both with ICIJ and ANSIA's data team and with the unique on-the-ground reporting of the investigative journalists. One of the unique aspects of this investigation was that all the reporters were African. What is the advantage of using local African journalists for these stories rather than bringing in prominent international reporters? I mean, to me it's bleedingly obvious and I think that's one of the admirable MOs of ICIJ and ANCIR, which is we acknowledge the unique perspective and skills that local journalists have. I, as an Australian working for an organisation based in the US, can only do a certain amount, but it's people like David, who you'll hear from later, who's lived and worked in Bamako, Mali all his life, who has contacts in the political sphere, in the business sphere, who can easily, or much more easily than anyone else, head out to the mining site and build up local rapports with workers or community leaders, gain their confidence and therefore explore more fully what's going on. Obviously, uh, international reporters and correspondents have a role to play, but what really excites me about this kind of cross-border collaboration is that we harness each other's skills. So I worked with David and 12 other journalists in Mali and in different countries and shared with them ICAJ and ANCIR's data analysis of companies, you know, of the number of fatalities that we found, of even how many companies are operating in their country, but it was people like David who could feed back to me and share with me and other members of the team, okay, well, I just spoke to Mr. X or Mr. Y, and he said X, Y, Z was happening in the local community. In addition to using local reporters, this was a transnational investigation. What did you learn from working with reporters across borders, and how might those lessons be applied to future collaborations? There certainly were lots of challenges. On a, on a basic level, you know, sometimes simply communication. You know, we worked with a reporter in Niger, for example, and a reporter in Cote d'Ivoire, um, both countries of which had electricity blackouts during reporting periods. So it was sometimes difficult to keep in touch with those journalists in terms of deadlines and updates about project management. I think more importantly, certainly what I learned about challenges in many different reporting environments was access to information. Mm. And David can speak to that too, I'm sure. But the difficulty of knowing that you know, a government agency apparently carried out an on-site investigation of the violence in Mali in 2012, and yet despite David spending months speaking to the actors involved in that, speaking to every parliamentarian who was on the committee who went there, he was still unable to find or have access to any official documentation that recorded what happened 
and whether or not any decisions or recommendations were made. What role did ANCA's iLab play in this investigation? And is there a need for such services? We at ICIJ did have the pleasure of working with ANCIR and ANCIR's iLab on this project. They offer a real suite of services to African journalists. In particular, in this project, there were editing services. Um, so ANCIR brought on very talented and well-respected English and French language editors who would work hand-in-hand with local reporters uh, in the final stages before publication, as any normal editor would. I mean, remember that often newsrooms across the world, you know, newsrooms generally aren't in a great state of health, but even more so in some places, I think, uh, in Africa where we had some partners, these are organisations working on very small budgets, and therefore they don't necessarily have layers of editorial assistance above them, as I was lucky to have in the US, to have someone to say, strip that out, get more information here, you need an additional quote here of support. So that's an invaluable service that ANCIR offers. After this transnational collaboration is over, how can the information gathered from the investigation be used by other journalists? So ICIJ's model, with the help of ANCIR, is always to have a data element to cross-border investigations, and we did this with fatal extraction. We spent much time doing what I understand to be the first ever comprehensive analysis of Australian stock exchange data, looking for all the mining companies who had activities and who had property or land in Africa relating to mining, and we've made that publicly available country by country, broken down by mineral, in some cases broken down by the size of the land holding. And I think that's really important uh, on one level so that we can say, at a, we can say this is the physical impact of Australian mining companies in Africa, but also very useful in the future, we hope, so that when a journalist in Zambia is writing about the mining industry in his or her home country, he or she can consult this information and see how many companies were active in Zambia and what minerals they were, they were mining. Now, while that might not sound particularly illuminating, remember that in some of these jurisdictions having locally produced government access or corporate access to documentation can be very difficult. Well, I guess one of the byproducts of this is that you now have a fairly unique insight into a cross-section of African newsrooms. Were there any differences or discrepancies between the countries covered in the investigation in terms of reporting style or quality? Uh, yes, absolutely. There's a basic level of resources. You know, there was, we have a wonderful partner in Senegal West Staff News, which is a non-profit online newsroom that does great independent work, but to my knowledge is manned by about two or three full-time to part-time people. And we also worked with you know, the Financial Mail in South Africa, which was a much bigger organisation. It's got brick-and-mortar offices in Johannesburg and regularly produces work of great quality. So there was obviously a difference there in what different newsrooms could do. I don't think that that necessarily reflects certainly not the quality of their output and even the impact and the changes that can come from that kind of reporting on the ground. Obviously working with journalists in different languages too. You know, francophone journalism I think has fundamental differences in the way in which it's written and the way in which it's researched than traditional anglophone journalism. 
Um, so again, Anki provided editorial services in both languages, which meant that we were able to work within, I think, the traditional structures of French-speaking and English-speaking journalism uh, to allow them to, to produce journalism along the lines that they generally produce without having to use a one-size-fits-all approach. And that's what I like about this kind of collaboration is that ANCIA and ICIJ doesn't dictate editorial standards or content to any of our partners. You know, our Ghanaian radio partners can do a 40-minute radio investigation if they so like, whereas our Malawian online news partner can do one or two shorter written pieces. And they can do that in ways that they know are of most interest to their readers, their audience, and according to their own professional uh, journalistic standards. Most critically, what did you learn about the process of investigative journalism? And how can you maximise the impacts of those findings? I think I learnt in this project that the potential of cross-border investigative journalism, particularly in Africa, is a very exciting space to be in. There's a real enthusiasm among lots of very talented journalists to work together with regional partners and with international partners to develop stories that really have an impact. So, you know, our West African partners, especially in Mali, Burkina Faso, um, and even across in Madagascar, they've since gotten together and had informal discussions about, okay, how can we work together as French-speaking Africans to improve or develop investigative journalism in our respective countries? Um, what I really enjoyed seeing was how a collaborative investigation was actually more impactful and also stronger in terms of what it could do than what journalists could do alone. So there are a number of companies that we looked at in Fatal Extraction who had different mining operations in different countries. And what that meant was all of a sudden you were no longer, as a journalist, writing a single story about a single company that you know, appears in the press one day and is then forgotten about when you're writing two or three stories about one particular company with its subsidiaries accused of various levels of wrongdoing in different countries, all of a sudden you're building up a profile of, in many cases, a multi-million dollar business and saying, this isn't just one incident of alleged wrongdoing, this is a series and potentially a systemic problem either in the industry or in the company itself. Next, we turn to the case of the Siama gold mine in southern Mali, a powerful example of the harmful impacts that Australian mining companies have on local communities. Mali is Africa's third largest gold producer, with the gold industry accounting for 15% of GDP and for 70% of export earnings. Mali offers favourable contracts to foreign mining companies that operate inside the country. While companies make large profits from mining in Mali, the people living in communities surrounding the mines often remain impoverished. This was certainly the case in Furu, a municipality near Mali's border with Cote d'Ivoire. The Siama gold mine in Furu is managed by the Somisi Mining Company, which has been a subsidiary of Australian company Resolute Mining Limited since 2003. The mining company's actions have impacted infrastructure and development, employment opportunities and Furu's environment. 
Many locals blame the municipal government for allowing the company to shirk social responsibilities, an important part of the company's contract. These responsibilities include building schools and health centres, maintaining roads and providing drinking water. In addition, while the mine was intended to offer employment to the local population, some locals complain that many jobs are still filled by outsiders. The environmental impacts of the mine, particularly destruction of arable land, air and water pollution, toxic waste and deforestation, all make life more difficult for people living in the surrounding area. Residents who were promised an escape from poverty when the mining company arrived are now angry that the quality of life has not improved. The local communities have not accepted the Siyama mine's misconduct quietly. On November 11, 2012, demonstrators halted work at the mine for several hours. Government security forces opened fire on the angry crowd, killing two people and injuring 14. In May of this year, female mine workers protested conditions in the community, particularly the lack of access to water, shutting down work at the mine for two days. In response, Balamuru Diara, head of human resources at Resolute Mining Limited, made the following statement. The water crisis is the fault of the town hall. It's not us. We work with the authorities of the town hall. However, whenever possible, we help people. With us now is David Dembele, a lead investigative journalist on the Siama gold mine story. David, how did you become involved in this investigation? I was recommended to the ICIJ through an organization from which I have benefited quite a lot, through training in the field of investigative journalism and in the field of finance in particular. Also, as I particularly like this area of journalism, I did not hesitate to respond to the first email that my friend William Fitzgibbon sent me, asking me to participate in the Fatal Extraction Project. It is with great passion and enthusiasm that I attended my first project with ICIJ. It was especially interesting to look at the Sayama case, as that is among the most scandalous in Mali. What were some of the biggest challenges in collecting the evidence and data for the investigation? Major challenges were first to go on the ground, to take the time necessary in order to meet with workers, local residents, unions and other sources that could enlighten us on these mining scandals. And the biggest concern was to catch the slightest word of mouth from the local director of Resolute Mining, Adama Bagayoko. So in order to gain a greater perspective on the company, I had to use some of his collaborators as sources. The Sumisi Siyama Mining Company had been operating in the area before the Australian company Resolute Mining Limited took over in 2003. What changed when the Australians arrived? Nothing has really changed since the Australians arrived. Rather, it violates the rights of workers, corrupts the local authorities, and even the government. Perez, with its financial strength, is engaged in scandals involving the acquiescence of land held by residents. So really not much of a change from the days of Sayama. What was the local response to the Australian company when it first arrived? And how did people's feelings towards the company change over time? The feelings among the populations of Sayama and Faru are split between disappointment and anger. They see the actions of local authorities and the government as being at the root of their problems. For local people, only the Malian government can force mining companies to enroll in the dynamics of an equitable distribution of wealth from the sub-national soil. Locals did protest against the mining company's practices, but what other actions did people take to make the grievances heard? 
In addition to other street protests and demonstrations that often took very violent dimensions, the population has invited officials from the mine to meet the specifications load by giving more room to the local development actions. How did the Malian government respond to local unrest? The Malian government has shown great irresponsibility. As proof, riots and other uprisings were severely repressed by security forces. That reaction is sufficient proof that the government is complicit in the situation. During the protests in 2012, the Malian government made recommendations to address the sources of discontent. Did the Australian mining company change its policies in reaction to these recommendations? These recommendations to include deputies went unheeded. Nothing has helped ease the social climate. The Sayama situation is a time bomb. How did political instability in Mali at the national level impact the activities of Australian mining companies in the country? I cannot tell you exactly how the Malian socio-political crisis of 2012 affected Australian mining companies. They certainly slowed their activities, but the crisis plan that began two years ago allowed them to regain confidence and to continue the deadly extraction. How did local corruption impact the activities of the Australian mining companies in Furu? The presence of the Australian mining companies gave a broader dimension to local corruption. Our investigation led us to unveil that mine workers, local elected officials, other notables all received bribes to keep quiet about the escapades of the mining industry. What is the state of Australian mining companies in Mali today? Australian mining companies are among the best known in Mali. There are currently around four companies total and they largely share the different gold zones of the east and south. to ICIJ, along with our two guests, Will and David, for joining us today and shedding light on this complex investigation. This Anchor podcast was funded by Open Society West Africa, co-produced by the World Policy Institute and engineered by Matthew DeMello. Tune in next time for a look at how one Australian mining company in Cote d'Ivoire is leaving local farmers without any land to farm.